This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to Doing Translational Research. I'm your host, Tony Burrow, and director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Today, I'm joined by one of our newest colleagues in the College of Human Ecology here at Cornell University, Dr. Jaleesa Reed. Hi, Dr. Reed. Hi. Dr. Jaleesa Reed is an assistant research professor in the Department of Human-Centered Design. Her primary research interest is in millennial Black women's beauty, culture, and beauty retail spaces. Her interdisciplinary research focuses on connecting human geography, feminist studies, and merchandising in the fashion, apparel, and textile industries. We are so fortunate to have your wisdom and expertise here with us today on our episode, so let's just jump right in. Um, One of the first things I want to do is ask you to characterize your research in your words. So what is it you do, if you could help our listeners understand that? And I think the, the best sort of phrasing for that might be, if you could share with us sort of the big question that your research is trying to understand. My main research interest is in Black American beauty retail spaces. And I know that's a mouthful. Um, So to break it down, I examine Black American beauty from a cultural and historical perspective. So I look at um, beauty culture, beauty rituals, and beauty standards within the U.S. context. And then from a business or a retail perspective, I look at the the spaces where the beauty products are sold. And I bring those together by, well, at this point, looking at millennial Black women's experiences in those spaces around beauty. Um, My research program is guided by three questions. Uh, The first one is, why and how is Black women's beauty hidden? Um, Because it, it does communicate to insiders and outsiders and Um, People pick up on them and they react accordingly, whether they know it or not. And then how do we sell Black American beauty and what are the implications of that? Because there's a difference between, you know, being seen and being valued. And then lastly, how do we design inclusive retail spaces that do more than just offer um, product and marketing representation? So are those three lines, I mean, you you said you sort of bring them together. Um, are are, Are the studies you do integrating those three lines of work simultaneously, or do you understand sort of approaching them as sort of um, iteratively or sequentially? Are they sort of always present, those three lines, in any of your studies, or do you think of them as sort of separable topics? Um, Both. So the first two questions around Black American beauty culture, those have been separate um, in some of my studies. And but I think that when I'm really in my element or doing the research that speaks to me, all three are included in there. In your work, do you involve community agencies or organizations or other non-academic stakeholders in your research? Um, so I don't involve any community agencies yet, um, but thinking about my current project around the beauty supply store, My stakeholders are my research participants who are millennial black women who shop at the store, and then also um, the store owners who tend to be of Asian descent, usually Korean immigrants or Korean Americans, depending on the generation of ownership. So um, so maybe this question may 
get out in front of our skis if this is an ongoing project and maybe you don't have the experiences to really think this through, but let me ask it anyway. Um, have you, in working with shop owners um, or the stakeholders of your work, have you encountered any challenges? And I also might add any opportunities that might be unique to the work you do. Yeah, so the challenges, um, well, there's this tension between the shoppers and the owners. Um, and that's sort of where I would like to focus my community efforts. So what's unique about the beauty supply store is that it's typically located in a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, the majority of the people shopping there are black women and the products are all tools for managing black women's appearance and beauty. Yet they tend to be owned by people who are not black. And this leads to tension within the space. Sometimes it becomes racial profiling, um, discrimination, sometimes outright violence. And a part, I guess, of the, the efforts um, that I'm trying to put in are to kind of reconcile this experience in the store. And then also to create a more cooperative relationship between the store owners and the community. That's interesting. The tension you notice and and what you direct your work to try to do about that tension. Um, do you have a sense as a researcher, as an investigator, to leverage your findings in a direct way to, to literally share your findings with potential with store owners or shoppers or those who frequent the stores? Or is it at a broader structural level? sort of change some feature or context of the setting or the, the, the amount or level or kinds of dialogue between shoppers and, and store owners. So do you see your work sort of having direct implications that you'd share with store owners, for example, or is it a little bit more indirect in how you'd hope to sort of change this landscape? Um, so I think it would be more direct. So I would share with the store owners, you know, that your customers feel that the lighting should be brighter or that you could do better with your product merchandising and the way that you display things. Um, but the concern that I have around that is the beauty supply store, black women are shopping there because there are products there that they can't get anywhere else. So even though the experience might be negative, they still return. And so if I was a store owner, you know, what is the payoff for me to change my store if people are just coming in anyway? So that's, I guess, the business or the retail side of it. And in response to that, I think that, you know, that's where I think there should be a more cooperative relationship with the store owners because they don't tend to live in the community, but they come in and they're taking the money out of it. And that was something that came up with my participants. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you can you unpack that? Give us an example, if it's appropriate to do so. Could you give us an example of something your participants have shared an experience, um, dare I ask for a quote, but an actual experience that was shared. Do they do they actually articulate an awareness that these folks may not live here and yet I have to go there to get these products. There may be very limited access to these products everywhere else. So I have to go to this place. Are the folks you're working with aware of that? And what do they, how do they navigate that? Yes, they are. Um, they're definitely aware. And okay it kind of ranges their reaction. So some people are just, they're kind of okay with it. You know, it's been happening so long. They've been shopping at the beauty supply store since they were young and they just kind of accept it as the way it is. Um, others, they feel some resentment and they would prefer to have a beauty supply store that's black owned 
and where they don't see other people coming in. Um, but the majority of them actually, they sort of sympathized with the store owners and um, they kind of understood that, you know, they're also trying to make money. It's two marginalized groups in this space. And their solution was actually to um, have the store owners maybe host school supply drives or um, host community events, just anything to really get them involved in the community. So it's not so much about us versus them um, set up. This this is fascinating. One slightly one final question to drilling down here is: Do you have any sense? Do you have a sense that the kinds of solutions to dealing with the tensions that you're describing do the solutions sound the same when coming from store owners versus shoppers, consumers? Do they do they do both folks kind of think of the same solutions here, or or, the, or do you detect a distinction between what they would think and realize is a meaningful dis, uh, solution? No, they aren't. I wouldn't say that they're the same. Um, okay. There's definitely two different viewpoints <laughs> that are meeting in the store. Um, a lot of the the practices of having you know so many cameras or burglar bars on the outside of the store. Uh, from the store owner owner's perspective, this is about loss prevention and protecting, you know, their investment, protecting their store. And there are some associations that because they're in a predominantly black neighborhood that they expect to be stolen from or expect someone to try to break in. And then from the other perspective of millennial black women, it's more so, well, why did you put your store here if you think that we are going to come in and steal mm-hmm. something? Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. You're, I think, already helping us understand and unpack this, but let me ask, when you think about the general area in which you work, what are some things you'd like the general public, the everyday person to understand about your work or its conclusions? What are the big takeaways you want folks to understand? I guess for people who have the means, you know, access to different options and tiers of shopping, I would ask them to take an honest look at where you shop, Um, what you buy and why. Um, You know, research shows that motivations for shopping, they range, they could be, you know, purely um, for pleasure or also just purely about function and convenience. But in some way, some form or fashion, we have been trading goods or buying things for centuries. So we've seen that it can evolve. And I think that it can evolve for the better if we try to put some collective action behind where we put our money. If there were one real world change that you could make based upon your research, what would it be and why? I have two. Um, and the first one is to, so if I had these omniscient all-knowing powers, I would make business more ethical. Um, and I know previously I talked about, you know, individual consumers making a difference because that's the level at where my research is. Um, But when you look at the bigger picture, corporations and companies are doing more harm than good. So, and this is supposedly in the service of the consumer and consumer culture. So for me, this is a problem that needs to be approached from both sides so that we can, you know, get to the change. Um, The second one would be that I would want to see all types of beauty casually represented, not in a tokenized way, but in a real way that really shows the multiple dimensions of these identities. Um, And this is, you know, people often ask me, well, what do white women think about this beauty brand? Or 
Um, how do you think they would feel if they were able to shop in the beauty supply store? And this question is just sort of always sent, it centers Eurocentric beauty and whiteness as the standard that we are all looking to achieve. And for Black women, and this has been you know documented since at least the 1950s, they have two standards of beauty, one that aligns with um, an American ideal standard, but also one that they cultivate within their community and teach and continue to pass down. And some of that does happen in the beauty supply store. So I think that there's, when we see representations of different types of beauty, we can also see, you know, the cultural relationship of it and see that it's more intimate. It gives beauty a different significance. And it's not just, you know, something or a reason for us to look at other people. Absolutely. This is, this is really interesting. And it, it, Think pushes toward a, a question that I'm, I want to ask you to think about. Um, fully realizing this is going to be um, is not born of your research. So just big disclaimer here. I don't think you. Ha- I don't think you. I'm not asking a question about what data do you have to compress in this direction. I'm actually asking for the silhouette of that, which would be um, what when you think about this tension you described that happens within a store or the broader social context in which tensions like this are happening. What research evidence? scientific finding, empirical, you know, result. What research do you think is the world waiting on to really make a difference and, and, to, and to move in the direction that you'd like it to move? I guess another way to think about this as you're thinking through the question is, what should we focus on from a research standpoint that you think stands the biggest chance at if that were produced, if we could only know that this relationship existed or this finding happened, you think the world needs to know that piece of information to then become the world that we'd like it to be? I guess the first thing that comes to mind is I think that consumers have more power than we think. And, you know, when you're trying to boycott a brand or trying to boycott a product, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot for one person to say, I'm going to take my $5 somewhere else. But, you know, if you can get your friends and your family behind that and it spreads, then $5 becomes, you know, $500 and so forth. And I think that we sort of underestimate how powerful that can be. And we just assume that companies or corporations will, you know, they won't change, but I don't think it's a matter of um, will they change or can they change? They can change. We've seen it. And it's, I think it's up to us to show them that it is profitable for them to do ethical business or to care about sustainability or climate change. So what might be hanging the balance is to actually see the numbers on that, to actually be shown evidence and, and understand with evidence that equitable treatment is beneficial for everyone. Like you're actually better off uh, when, when, when we treat people equitably and to actually see the numbers and, and despite people's hope that people naturally get that, that seeing evidence and more research on that could be helpful. That's a really interesting, really interesting insight. I do want to add to the last thing that I just said, um, because what you said made me think of something else. So the research shows that when we're trying to boycott a brand, it's hit or miss. And it's mostly because people want to have a low risk threshold. So if they have to give something up, they want to have something else to replace Hmm. it with. It's not enough to just say, well, we don't agree with them, so don't shop there anymore. And especially in beauty and beauty products, they want to find another product that does the same thing, but they just don't want to be associated with the brand. So 
it depends on, you know, how committed you are and how, you know, whether or not you can find something to replace it with. At least that's what that's what's in the research. Oh, that's interesting that it, it, it that this also rubs up against just who has the privileges or luxuries of just boycotting because if you're boycotting, you may really have to go without. <laughs> um, if, if there's not another product just waiting for you, you have to really think about kind of play the way the pros and cons of that. Uh, there may be a, more at stake for for some folks. You, you're such a vivid. We, we spoke about the tension, and, and you, you, there's such a setting, literal setting, for where your work can take place and the implications of your work. Can you give us a, a sense and flavor of a particular study that you've done that focuses on these issues in the settings that you're describing? Yes. So um, to go back to the beauty supply store, I looked at how the store design influenced um, the customer's experience. So not just, you know, their interactions with employees or with other people, but in some stores, there's a higher sort of like a step where the cash register is. And so whoever is checking you out can kind of look down. They can kind of see throughout the store, but they can also look down at you when you come to check out. And typically behind them, there's um, screens so you can see that they saw you while you were shopping and they've been watching you the whole time. And it's really a, a very surveilled place. But from the minute you walk in, you know that your experience of being in a racialized body, it's they also see you that way. And it's not just another customer. There's also some some feeling behind, you know, why they have these things set up this way. And so, and so what, what did you do in that space? You documented the physical, the layout and how people felt about that? Or what did you do in that, with that space? Yes. So I um, observed the space. So I observed how they interacted. I took notes on, you know, what was consistent with other beauty supply stores. So that step up was consistent. Um, The cameras, the, um, the ways that they had the products set up in either on the floor or um, on the wall behind the counter. And I asked uh, my participants, well, what do you think of this? Or did you notice anything different about your beauty supply store? And that's where they came in and said, well, yeah, you know, I'm used to seeing the step or I'm used to seeing cameras and I would expect that. And if I went to a different store, it would feel weird to not see that at the beauty supply store. Interesting. So there's a there's a there's a embodiment, a physical embodiment that as you're shopping, you're also aware of how the store is set up. It's shaping the experience you're having, selecting products and looking around for various things. And um, a reminder that the way spaces are physically designed can be internalized and, and shape the experience that consumers in this case would have as they matriculate the store um, is really interesting. So you've talked about the structure of the stores and their location. Can you talk a little bit about the composition or makeup of the staff or employees at these stores? Uh, So they tend to be, um, usually it's the owner or the owner's kids that work there. But in some stores, they actually hire young Black women to come in and talk to the customers because it's easier for them to kind of find product recommendations and there's more of a sense that, you know, they're friendly, but also they're not really treated that well either from the employee perspective. And there's some accounts of that too. Of young black women employees saying they're not treated well by their employers. Yes. By the store owners. Store owners. Um, Okay. Yeah. 
they're also asked to follow people around the store or, you know, make sure that someone doesn't steal anything. And that makes some of them uncomfortable because, you know, they are also consumers in the store too when they're not working. And so they end up quitting. Um, But some people can put up with it. Does your research directly or in your observations of, of these dynamics and interactions consider age in this? I mean, when you talk about your interest in millennial Black women and maybe even the staff who are hired by these store owners, is there any interaction with age that you've noticed about whether these experiences are more or less tolerated, uh, acknowledged as a function of the age of the consumer or the shopper? Yes. So uh, millennials are actually less tolerant of this experience. Um, And compared to generations of Black women before them, millennials do have more access to different channels of beauty, you know, different places to shop for beauty products. And in the face of the treatment that they experience at the beauty supply store, some have become entrepreneurs. So they've opened their own beauty supply store or um, they opened a mobile one and they've added a drive-through and a, a lash place. So it's closer to the trends of today. Um, and I think it probably resonates more with other millennials. That's so interesting. And especially the, the, the reactive component is because of the experiences I've had in the store, I actually go out and create my own store. Uh, instead of dealing with this, I may actually create my own shop uh, in, in, in response to not wanting to tolerate that experience. That, that's actually really, really interesting. So this was absolutely fantastic. This is a wonderful conversation. So thank you for taking the time to share a little bit about your research with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So with that, we want to thank you all who are listening to Doing Translational Research, and please tune in next time. Thank you.